This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a show where we discuss how to navigate the highs and lows of the human condition. Each week, we address a new topic, and we see that there are two choices we can make. We can lower the bar, go with the flow, and react to what the world throws at us, or we can be proactive, deciding in advance how we want to live, and in essence, rise above the human condition. We hope the discussion today is just what you need for the week ahead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Transcend Human podcast. It is November 22nd. Happy Monday uh, to all of you. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. This week, um, this is great. I mean, this is kind of me being back to my normal routine, my normal schedule. So for the most part, um, when I'm recording these one-off episodes, there's kind of a weekly process I go through from researching to writing to then recording toward the end of the week and, uh, and having it ready to go Monday morning. So I had gotten into that routine, um, but then what happened, I think we, we got into the Transcendent Parenting Series, and uh, Tammy and I knew that that just wasn't going to work for both of us, for our schedules and for all the things that we had going on. So we kind of dove into a different rhythm, and while I was doing my one-off episodes each week, uh, behind the scenes, we were you know talking through episode content, uh, writing stuff, and recording Uh, in advance. And so there were times where we, you know, we would sit down and we would knock out two, sometimes three episodes at one time, because that's when we were able to kind of get together, connect and knock everything out. So we had probably six, seven, maybe, yeah, probably seven or eight of the parenting episodes done uh, before we ever launched them. So then during that time, Um, you know, when we already had the episodes done and we were just launching them one a week, uh, there was a lot of time in there where I had free time to, to be researching other topics and to be writing different things. And I actually jumped ahead and I started working on the conscience driven therapy uh, episodes. So there's a, a number of those kind of sitting there just waiting to go next year. But then once the, once the parenting series was over, um, you know, kind of settled back into this normal routine that I was used to. And so it feels good to be back, back doing this weekly kind of weekly rhythm, um, which is very much a part of my personality, uh, routine and rhythm. Uh, it really works well for me. So that was a long (laughs) way of saying, um, yeah, that's how the, that's how the system works. And I'm glad we're back for a little while. Obviously, that'll go all wonky again in January uh, when I start launching the Conscience Driven Therapy episodes, uh, as the, most of those will probably be done in advance. Um, but it'll be good. It'll be good to put those out and then keep working ahead on, on the next big thing. So let's dive in. Uh, starting with our Minute of Transparency. Uh, this week, I'm going to call it Testing Gravity. So have you ever tested gravity? in your life. And I mean, really tested it in, in a variety of ways. Um, 
really done something that proved that gravity is a thing or used gravity in such a way uh, as to have fun, to do a sport, to do an extreme sport, something like that. Uh, so I'm just going to walk through a few of the things um, that I've experienced in my life. Um, and then, you know, you just play along and, and see if you can remember anything like that in your life. So the first thing I can remember is back when we lived in Wyoming, uh, we would go on trips on the weekends, just day trips sometimes, uh, camping trips, things like that. And we'd go back into the mountains and we would we would take the pickup and we would just drive around and we would camp. And we did a lot of hiking and walking and climbing and stuff like that. And I can remember one trip we were on, we kind of came to this cliff that was pretty high. I would say 30, maybe 30, 20, 30 feet high. So not, you know, not something you could just jump off if you really wanted to. And on the top part of the cliff, there was a pipeline, a metal pipeline. I don't know what went through it, if it was water, oil, uh, whatever it was. But there was this pipe that just went straight off the cliff. And because pipes don't bend unless you make them bend, the pipe literally just kept going out into space and then eventually worked its way back down till it hit the ground again. So picture that, right? If, if, you're, if you're standing at the top of the cliff, you just see this pipe and it's just going out into space. And then eventually you see, you know, maybe 50 yards farther along, the pipe hits the ground and then it keeps going on its way. So my brother and I, you know, because we're crazy little kids and we just love climbing on stuff, we got on the pipe and we just started pulling ourselves along off the cliff, hanging onto the pipe. And we got a ways out, maybe 10 feet, 15 feet out on the pipe. And that's when it really hits you, right? You look down and you realize how far it is down if you were to fall off this pipe. And so we had a, I mean, we had a moment, we kind of like laughed about it and then we kept going and we made it all the way down to where the pipe hit the ground again. And I can still remember looking back and, and just seeing the look on my mom's face because she was mortified. She was like, what are you doing? What, you know, she's just thinking of all the bad things that could happen if one of her sons fell off the pipe. But that was kind of my first memory of something that included gravity. Then, probably late, a little bit later on, on one of these trips, uh, we came to a place where there was a, a place to climb. And it was, you know, it was, a, it was a cliff that we came up to at the bottom. And it was really rocky and uh, not like a rock face that rock climbers use, but it was more of just a, a nice cliff that had a lot of rocks um, in it. And immediately, you know, loving to climb, I'm like, oh, I got to try this, right? So I just started climbing straight up and got about halfway, three quarters of the way up and I got stuck. Stuck because I could not for the life of me figure out where to go next. I couldn't find a handhold. I couldn't find a place to put my foot and I was just stuck. Now the people down at the bottom were like, oh yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. You're good. You're good. But there was nothing I could do. Even with people helping me and telling me where to put my hand next, I couldn't figure it out. So for those of you who know, there's a pretty big predicament that happens when you're halfway up a climbing 
episode or a rock face or something like that. And you have to turn around and come back down. Coming down is way harder than going up. Because when you're going up, you can actually see or you can look around and find the next handhold that you need to, to grab in order to keep moving forward. But when you look down, it looks different. And it's very hard to tell where you can put your hand or your foot in order for it to be stable. And so I started my way back down and was having a really difficult time and actually had to rely on people at the bottom telling me where to put my foot next in order to come all the way back down. That was probably, a, you know, one of the scariest things I've ever experienced. Of course, I was young, so I'm probably building it up in my mind. Um, but just another incident where gravity <laughs> played a pretty big role. Now, what's another one? Um, oh, this is a bad one. So another thing that happened, we, we went camping this one time uh, at a conference center. And I remember in the conference center, there was this area where there were pretty big flights of stairs that went from the top floor to the bottom floor. And there was a group of kids playing on the stairs. And they were like, oh, yeah, let's see if we can jump down the stairs. And so we started you know, a, a few, a few stairs at a time, like we would, you know, walk up two, three, four stairs, turn around, and then we would jump down to the landing. And then we would try it again. And we would go four five, six stairs, and then we would jump down to the landing. And we kept working our way up to the top. Um, and I feel like I made it, you know, maybe three or four from the top. And I made it pretty easily. And I'm like, Oh, man, I think I could jump this entire flight of stairs and land on the bottom. And, and be fine. Now, the difference is when we were jumping off of the stairs, we were jumping at a, from a standstill, right? So we would climb up, we would stand on a stair, turn around, and then we would just jump with minimum momentum, just enough to get us from that stair down to the landing. But when I was at the top I realized, oh, I've got extra space. Like I can back up a little bit and I can kind of get a run at it. So what I did is I, I backed up three or four steps and kind of got a run at it. And I jumped who knows how many, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 steps. I don't even know. But it was a full flight of stairs. Jumped all the way down to the landing. And when I hit, when I hit on the landing... My feet hit first, and I was a little bit off balance. And so the next thing that hit was my butt. It literally came flying down between my legs and slammed into the landing. Not a good feeling. Immediately, I'm like, oh, something's wrong. Uh, and I, I think I spent the next day or two in the tent just laying there, recovering from whatever it was I did to my backside. Uh, that was a really good example of how dangerous gravity can be if you can't control it. Next, as I got a bit older, I got a bit smarter, and I realized that if I want to do this kind of stuff, I should really protect myself. So I got into rock climbing and rappelling, right? You've got ropes, you've got harnesses, you've got things that are meant to protect you from gravity, and yet you can still play around with it. So took many rock climbing trips in Wisconsin, in Wyoming, 
um, you know, just fun trips where we got to go and we got to climb some pretty fun, um, fun areas of the country. And rappelling, also very fun. It's, it's basically a controlled fall, right? You are stepping off of a cliff and you are allowing gravity to want to drag you to the bottom, but you're just controlling it with a rope and a little device in order to keep you from falling quickly. Fun stuff for those of you who like that sort of thing. And then finally, I guess the ultimate is uh, skydiving, right? When you jump out of a plane, you're basically giving yourself up to gravity. And you're saying, it's okay. I have a parachute. I know that I'm safe. And I'm going to jump and allow gravity to do its thing. So we did this back. Uh, my, my daughter and I and a friend uh, did this a few years ago now uh, in Arizona. And it was just a, an amazing experience. It's something I, I think everyone should do just because you kind of push past that fear that you have of gravity and of heights. Um, great moment. Glad that I did it. I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but I'm so glad that I got to do it. Okay, so that's it. Uh, a few little transparent stories about me and gravity. Um, but what I really want to do is to move into the topic for today, which is the transcendent truth path. And we're going to talk through three different things this week. Um, first, the truth path. Second, deconstructionism. And third, preserving absolute truth. Number one, the truth path. So this is really kind of the concept behind this episode, right? This is the point that I really want to drive home. And it's this idea that there's a truth path that stretches all the way from the beginning of time to the end of time, right? I'm going to refer to it throughout this episode as the truth path or as absolute truth, um, because I believe that it literally came straight from our creator and can't be changed. So what kind of truths am I referring to? Well, there seem to be two pretty obvious categories. So there are truths about the natural world, right? Things like gravity, we just talked about, the boiling point of water, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? There are scientific and chemical truths that are just absolute truth. It just is what it is. And then there are truths that exist not because of the natural world, but because God said they were truths, right? So things like love, freedom of choice, grace, salvation, things like that. Truths that are actually more wrapped up into our spiritual or our religious beliefs uh, than anything else. But the important thing is that we recognize that these truths are absolute, right? They apply in their entirety until the end of time. And when you look back at the beginning, you can see how this absolute truth has been carried like an Olympic torch throughout history, all the way from the beginning to us today, and it will be carried all the way through to the end. So let's talk through this truth path or this timeline, if you will, from the beginning of time to us and how this truth has been basically handed down from generation to generation, from group of people to group of people um, to where it is today. So this truth path began right during the creation of our world. God created the world, and in doing so, some of these 
truths, these absolute truths about the natural environment were put into place. Now, they may have even existed before that. I don't know. Um, but definitely as he was putting our little planet together and, you know, instituting the, the things like night and day and the water and the firmament and just all of the things he put into place, uh, there was also this natural scientific truth system that was put into place at the same time, along with the truths that we talked about that are more spiritual. Once this world was created, this truth, this absolute truth was then handed to Adam and Eve, right? The first people on earth, the parents. Um, then after they taught their children, it was handed down generation and generation through the patriarchs. So patriarchs in the Bible like Enoch, Noah, Methuselah, Abraham, big names that you hear about when you read the Bible. And eventually... Uh, truth was formalized for the first time into a religious system, a religious group of people. So Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and these tribes made up the Israelites or the Jewish people. And they, for a while, carried what we would call absolute truth for many years. Then came the life in the times of Jesus on earth. So Jesus literally lived absolute truth, right? He came to earth. He literally lived absolute truth for all of us to see. The Jewish people did not view Jesus as God in the flesh. And so the torch could not remain with the Jewish people, right? It had to be passed on to the next group of people who were willing to carry absolute truth. So the torch was passed on to this group of people called the way, the Bible talks about this group right after the death of Jesus. They kind of took the life and the teachings of Jesus and they they talked about him. They spread the word to, to everyone that they could spread it to. And eventually the way became Christianity or the Christian faith. Christianity was largely overtaken at some point by the Catholic Church. So back in the Dark Ages, um, you know, it there was this enmeshment between Christianity, Catholicism, and then um, basically Roman and Greek mythology, right, started getting pulled into the church. Uh, and there was just this giant mix of ideas and beliefs that were not actually true. A lot of them were not true. But absolute truth still remained with a small group of people. Eventually, um, there was this little thing called the Protestant Reformation, where some of these small groups of people um, started pushing back against Catholicism, and it grew and it grew and it grew until there was enough momentum to have this group of people break away from Catholicism and literally create an entirely new spiritual reality, which was Christianity or Protestant Christianity. And that really leads us to you and me today, right? We live in a world where Christianity remains and absolute truth is available to all of us. Now, it's just hard to find absolute truth because Christianity is now so splintered. There are so many denominations. There's so many evangelical offshoots and megachurches in many different shapes and sizes and forms. But the important thing to understand is that even though there's all of this division, all of these different 
variations of Christianity. Absolute truth has been handed down. The truth path, like we talked about, since creation. It isn't going anywhere. It will be here till the end of time. It's available to each and every one of us if we're willing to search for it. So what is it that keeps us from finding absolute truth and from basically applying it to our lives or or living in such a way that our lives reflect absolute truth? Well, one of the big reasons is the existence of Satan, right? So Satan is extremely intelligent and he is always looking for ways to distract us from what is really important in life. And that number one thing that's important is absolute truth, right? If if I was a Lamborghini and something went wrong with me, the absolute truth would come from the people who built the Lamborghini, right? You go back to the factory, you go back to the company and the original people who built that car and they can tell you what's wrong with the car because they have the absolute truth about that vehicle. Similar to us, right? There is absolute truth that comes from our creator and we just have to find it. And Satan does not want us to find it, right? There's nothing he wants more than in in life is to keep us from finding and, and realizing that there is absolute truth and that it comes from our creator. So what, what has he done to do this, right? What has he done to keep us from finding absolute truth? Well, I think he's gone through a number of variations uh, or ideas or strategies. Early on, he just flat out tried to kill it off, right? Think about the Israelite people and how they were enslaved in Egypt. Think about Christians during the Dark Ages being thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum in Rome. Um, or the Protestant Reformation when people uh, people were actually burned at the stake for speaking out against the pagan practices that had kind of crept into the church. I mean, it was just flat out, do as we say or you die. And this was all fueled by Satan's rage at not wanting us to find absolute truth, right? Another strategy Satan used eventually is to just hide it, right? Hide it like a needle in a haystack. Uh, you know, I, I think that he has definitely had a hand in, in manipulating the Christian world so that all sorts of different people want to go in all sorts of different directions, right? Leading to the formation of hundreds of different Christian denominations and sects, all sorts of different, different areas. Some of them cults, you know, uh, there's just so much variation. Satan knows that by splitting up the truth into many different little versions, he can create doubt infighting, and eventually frustration, right? People are less likely to trust Christianity if they're faced with so many versions of it. It's kind of like when I go to a, a store and I'm just I'm just trying to buy toothpaste, right? So I walk into the aisle and first of all, you have all the different brands. Then there's whitening versus non-whitening, paste versus gel. There's all the different flavors. Some have flavor bursting crystals. Others have baking soda. Others are made for sensitive teeth, right? Apparently, some can actually help build the enamel on your teeth, apparently. And that's just toothpaste, right? Try walking down the potato chip aisle sometime or the cereal aisle. And there's just so many different options. And at times, because of all these options, you almost just want to walk away and not buy anything, right? 
And that's the way I think it can get for people when they're confronted with all of the division and all of the different denominations in the Christian church. And then finally, I think Satan has moved into his new strategy, which is really just distraction, right? It's busyness, it's distraction, it's misguidance. Uh, And this latest strategy involves like keeping us working so hard that we don't even have time to think. Work, kids, sports, shopping, all, all of the different things keep us from even thinking about the important things, the spiritual things. Um, and, you know, living in a world with competing voices, right? You, you hear so many different voices in the news, in movies, on TV, through social media. So many competing voices that we have a really hard time identifying what's actually true to begin with. But if you believe, if you really believe in this concept of absolute truth and this idea that it has followed the truth path all the way from the beginning and it will go all the way to the end, then you understand how important that is in the grand scheme of things, right? We know that God will not allow his absolute truth to be hidden or phased out completely. There will be times when things seem pretty bleak, right? Times when the truth is literally hanging on by a thread, but it's still there. God always has a group of people who are willing to carry the flame, carry the torch of truth forward to the next generation or the next group of people. And when we look back on history, some of these groups stand out, right? We're able to look back and we're able to see how they did that and how they preserved the truth in in even very difficult times. So one of these groups is uh, a group of people called the Waldensians. It's a group of religious people living right before the Protestant Reformation in the late 12th century. And, you know, this group was highly persecuted because they wouldn't cave in to the teachings of the Catholic Church. So they split off you know, they, they left where they lived, they moved up into the mountains, and they literally hid out in the mountains for years and years and years in order to not only um, remove themselves from in the intense persecution, but also to hold on to those religious beliefs. So they basically carried, you know, some of the basic teachings of Jesus, teachings that helped lead the Protestant Reformation, teachings that most Protestant religions even hold on to to this day. They were flame keepers, right? They were torch bearers, a small group of people that held on to that truth. They played their little role in the truth path, right, during that dark period of our history. And they did it. They preserved the truth in their day because it was so important. They were the torch bearers of their generation and they successfully passed it on to the next generation. Number two, deconstructionism. So deconstructionism is just a fancy word for taking things apart, right? But at the same time, it's not simple at all. Deconstructionism was a term first used in philosophy. Um, I'll link to a definition of it in the show notes just in case you're interested, but it almost put me to sleep, which is fine because that's really not the deconstructionism that we're going to focus on today. So deconstructionism is also a phenomenon in the church world, right? It's an approach to a person's spirituality or their religious beliefs, one that's really become quite popular in the last five, ten years. It's basically a shiny new toy, right? One that all the cool kids have and all the cool kids are buying into. And it's cool for a couple of reasons. First, 
like I said, it's the cool thing, right? There's a there's a pretty big group of high level, high impact people who have come out um, and explained that they are in this process of deconstructing their belief system. So that's one reason. The other reason is that you're considered woke if you join the movement. Now, woke is just today's term for being enlightened or being able to think outside the box on some level, right? However, just because it appears to be the shiny new toy in this day and age doesn't mean that it is. In essence, deconstructionism has always existed in one form or another since the beginning of time. Curtis Vanderpool of Relevant Magazine discusses this a bit in his article called The Age of Deconstruction and the Future of the Church. He does a good job explaining where it came from, popular people who came out as deconstructionists, and then he explains that it really isn't a fad or a phase or a season at all, right? He believes that it's something that is here to stay, and here is where he kind of takes a new bent on it. Uh, He believes that it actually came from God. He believes it's a tool through which we remove some of the religious bloat and get back to the important things like God, love, serving others, etc. He believes that deconstruction spells the end of the church in the West, but not the end of Christianity in and of itself. He ends his article with this statement, deconstruction will bring us back to the heart of God. And this is really the foundation I want to work off of in this section of the episode. So I agree with Curtis when he, you know, suggests that there are two kinds of, or two versions of deconstructionism. Uh, And I'll break them out uh, a little bit differently. So I would, I would break deconstructionism into the following. The people who say I'm deconstructing my faith and the people who say I'm deconstructing my religion. To me, there's a very important distinction between these two. So let's start with the latter. Let's start with religion, the religious piece, because this is the piece that I believe Curtis was really talking about. Uh, Each of us who grew up kind of in traditional Christianity or having a traditional kind of religion or denomination that we were a part of has probably had a bad experience or two or three or maybe four. Maybe it was false teachings uh, thrown in accidentally. Maybe it was a pastor that had a moral failure. Maybe it was having overly involved parents who didn't practice what they preached. Or maybe you were hurt by the church for any number of reasons, uh, and this led you to a place that was uncomfortable. You, we, had to make some important decisions about what we were taught. Were we just going to buy into this thing that our parents told us? Or were we going to stand up and push back on some of those things, call a spade a spade, and choose to live differently? To me, this is deconstructing our religion. So looking back at the way Christianity was taught and lived out and forced upon us when we were growing up. But it isn't the Christianity itself that we're deconstructing, right? It's the attitudes, the behaviors, the failures, the narcissism, the liberties people take with Christianity that become religious or religion. Those are the things that we're questioning and choosing to remove or change a bit in our lives moving forward. Now, let's look at the other option, right? What it means to deconstruct our faith. So to me, this is the flip side of the coin. Instead of deconstructing the negative or the flat-out incorrect elements 
thrown, uh, you know, thrown in here or there throughout our upbringing, we're actually going to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, right? Instead of deconstructing our religious experience, we're going to deconstruct Christianity itself. And this comes in a variety of shapes and sizes, right? Some people will just slowly pull away from some of the basic tenets of their faith. Others will make sweeping changes all at one time and, and kind of head in a whole different direction, but they still consider themselves Christians. And still others determine that Christianity is no longer for them. Like, I'm out, right? Maybe they jump to another world religion, or in some situations, they go straight to atheism, right? A world religion in and of itself. Now, this is really what I want to focus on in this section of the episode. So I've already suggested that absolute truth exists and that it's on a truth path, right? Like we talked about from beginning to end. And if this is true, then deconstructing our faith is an experiment in futility, right? Because we're actually trying to deconstruct absolute truth, something that will continue to be true no matter what we believe about it. Okay, let me say that one more time. Deconstructing our faith is an experiment in futility because we're actually trying to deconstruct absolute truth, something that will continue to be true no matter what we believe about it. See how dangerous that is? I mean, the simple illustration here is gravity, right? Like we talked about earlier. I can't jump off a cliff and say, I don't believe in gravity, so I won't be impacted by it. But the end result is the same regardless what I believe about gravity, right? The absolute truth of gravity is going to drag me down no matter what, if I believe it or not. Now, of course, deconstructing our faith doesn't have that immediate negative result that jumping off of a cliff does. I mean, you know, you can make that decision, the the decision to deconstruct your faith And you can literally live a a long, full life. You can be joy-filled. You can have fun. You can be successful, right? With, With deconstructing your faith, it isn't really until you die or until the world ends that you even see the dividends pay off of the decision that you made to deconstruct your faith. But at that point, it's too late, right? So let's get practical and specific. When someone deconstructs their faith, what is actually happening? Well, in order to answer that, let's use another illustration. So let's pretend that absolute truth is a large uh, 500-piece puzzle, right? In order to see the full picture, you need every single piece. You can't just lose one or throw one out or cut a piece so that it fits better somewhere else in the puzzle. Each of the 500 pieces has to be connected correctly, and each piece must lock into a surrounding piece in order for the whole picture to be seen. So in this illustration, deconstruction occurs when we remove one of the pieces of the puzzle, a piece that God created and actually put together correctly. It's when we try to pull out one of these pieces and decide, you know, I really don't like this piece, so I'm just going to toss it in the trash. That's when we look back at the puzzle and it looks different, right? It looks a little strange because now there's a hole in the middle of the puzzle. And this is the danger with deconstructing our faith, the deconstructionist mindset today. It's becoming popular to deconstruct the very thing that has endured since the dawn of time, absolute truth that has been passed down over the truth path. Taking one small piece of the larger puzzle out, manipulating it, deforming it, and then trying to put it back into the larger puzzle. 
The problem is the deformed piece has the power to ruin the entire puzzle, right? It's as if we've created a new religion called deconstructionist theology, trimming our beliefs down so they fit us better, uh, more of an individualized approach to defining truth, right? Picking and choosing the pieces we like best, even though the puzzle is no longer complete for us. Number three, preserving absolute truth. So like we said above, absolute truth is absolute truth, no matter what we believe about it, right? It doesn't change and it doesn't go away. So when we engage in the deconstruction of our faith, we're simply changing the picture we see, the puzzle that we're looking at, and obviously the way we would present it to other people around us. Ultimately, this is the danger. So back to the gravity illustration, right? Choosing not to believe in gravity is harmful to us, right? In fact, it can kill us. If we choose not to believe in the absoluteness of gravity and step off of a cliff, we could die. Similarly, we can easily mislead others. Imagine as a parent telling your child, you know what, gravity doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And then you take that child on a mountain hike where there's lots of cliffs. It sounds really stupid when you put it this way, right? But ultimately, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about when it comes to absolute truth. We are putting ourselves and those around, of, around us in danger when we choose to ignore or deconstruct absolute truth. Now, the title of this section is a little misleading, right? Preserving absolute truth, as if it needs preserving, right? I think I've made it pretty clear that absolute truth is what it is because it doesn't change. It doesn't go away. So what I'm talking about here really is different. It's, it's us asking, how do we preserve absolute truth in our lives? How do we find it? How do we hold on to it? How do we protect it ourselves rather than heading in the other direction and heading down the road of deconstructionism? How do we find all 500 of the puzzle pieces and see them as equally important? How do we protect them in their original state without altering them? Only then will the puzzle remain intact for us, for our family, and for those we interact with. Now, maybe along with the absolute truth concept, we should use terms like congruent truth or complementary truth or complete truth, things like that, because these words actually describe what's going on, which is a synergy, a harmony that exists only when all of the pieces are fitting together properly. The problems begin when we start to change congruent truth into a more convenient truth. It's like finding a loose thread and pulling on it, only to watch an entire sweater fall apart before your eyes. Now, spoiler alert, this is one of Satan's greatest weapons in the controversy, especially today. Getting us to rethink one small piece of absolute truth, then using that piece as a magnifying glass for the entire bulk of absolute truth. And when we start to do that, everything else starts to unravel. Another piece of the puzzle starts to look out of place. So we start messing with that one. And before long, we're asking questions about everything, all the pieces. This is really the dark side of deconstructionism, right? The deconstructionist process that impacts our actual faith. It's not just our religious experience, whether I like loud music or, or quiet music. You know, I mean, that has nothing to do with our salvation. That's just religion, right? But when we take one piece out of the puzzle, 
look it over and decide that we would like it to be slightly different, two things happen. First is disillusionment, right? So as, as things start to unravel, we feel less and less sure about everything else. We slowly start removing floorboards one at a time, and then we wonder why we're not finding a solid place to stand in the room. And then number two, along with disillusionment, we have deception. So we can be easily deceived in these situations because it's like a new version of the truth. And we're picking and choosing portions of the truth or we're rearranging truth in order to make it perfect for us. In fact, it seems better than the original because it fits like a glove, right? Maybe it allows us to truly be ourselves or uh, maybe it allows us to do things that we want to do. But this is so dangerous because absolute truth was not created for us. It exists because it is the truth, regardless of whether it works for us or not. So let's get specific, right? I'm just going to walk through a few high-level places where these little strings are hanging out of the sweater and people start pulling on them. Number one, failing to see the truth path. So this might just be the most important one, right? It's when we choose to believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. This being the case, we just make it up as we go. All of the truth is passed through our filter, which is typically the filter of selfishness or self-serving behavior. What works best for me? The problem is that our made-up truth is rarely anywhere near or close to what absolute truth actually is. Number two, the true nature of Jesus. So many of us want to paint Jesus as a good person, but we don't really want to go all the way and present the fact that he's God or believe in the fact that he's God. And this is one of the major puzzle pieces that you just can't simply remove or change. The Bible explains that Jesus was part human and part God. And that it was this unique combination that allowed him to live the perfect life die for our sins, and then be resurrected. This is the key to everything, right? This is the key to our our salvation, whether or not we have the option to go to heaven and live forever. So deconstructing who Jesus is basically unravels all of Christianity. Number three, the infallibility of the Bible. So failing to see that the Bible includes absolute truth is a crucial piece of the puzzle, right? Looking at it as just a collection of interesting stories or, um, yeah, they're just allegories. You know, half of the stuff in there is just, it's just meant to like spur us on, to give us like motivation, but it isn't absolute truth. When in fact, the Bible is quite literally the user manual for the human race. For the Christian, without the Bible, there would be no way to know or define absolute truth, right? Put another way, if we believe that Jesus came to earth and was part God, we really have no choice in how we view the Bible because Jesus taught that the scriptures were the word of God, the only place where you're able to find absolute truth. And like we said, without absolute truth, you're just making stuff up. You're just making things up that work best for you. Number four, the state of the dead. So what happens when you die anyway? There are a number of different views on this, and we'll talk a little bit about them. But when you look back through the Bible, when you look back through the truth path, 
we find that the original belief was that death is a sleep, right? This was an almost universally agreed upon truth. You sleep in the grave until you are resurrected. But this is another belief that fits into the larger puzzle of absolute truth. And when you change it, the puzzle starts to fall apart. The sweater starts to unravel. It's super popular these days to believe that when you die, something happens. Your soul splits from your body. It leaves your body and it goes to heaven. Or if you're a Catholic, that could include uh, this little thing called purgatory, where you're kind of in this state in the middle where you're not really sure if you're a good person or a bad person and people are able to pray for you and and pay money to the church so that you can eventually get to heaven. So where did all of this come from, right? This wasn't part of the original truth path. So where did it come from? Well, it came straight out of Roman and Greek mythology. There was a time when the Catholic Church was doing everything in its power to be all things to all people. And one of the ways they were able to do that was to incorporate some of the mythological concepts and statues and um, things like that into the Christian religion. And so that's where some of these beliefs came from. And they were just incorporated into Christianity as if they were the truth. But this challenges the absolute truth found in the Bible. It's funny. The first recorded lie in the Bible was when Satan told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit God asked them not to eat, they would not surely die. Interesting, right? He told them that they would live on and that death would not be a final thing. Sound familiar? The soul leaving the body and living on after death? I mean... If we're all still alive in some form or fashion, then what's the need to be resurrected, right? And if it's true that our souls do leave our bodies when we die, then Satan wasn't lying, right? We're we're basically saying that Satan was telling the truth and that it was God who lied to Adam and Eve. Ouch. See what I mean about things just unraveling quickly based on pulling one piece of the puzzle out and reframing it? Number five. Bible stories, stories like the universal flood, for example. So people are always questioning stories that seem too big to be true, stories that seem to defy science or our natural laws, stories like Jonah being swallowed by the whale or the burning bush that wasn't consumed, uh, the donkey that talked back to his owner, the sun standing still, and yes, the story of Noah's flood. When people can't wrap their minds around a story like this, they tend to discount it in some way or the other, right? Typically writing it off as a work of fiction or just a made-up story or a made-up illustration, Uh, stories meant to inspire or teach us a life lesson, but things that didn't actually happen, right? But when we do this, we do a number of things. First, we limit the power of God. When we do this, we put them in a box and we say, no, I don't think so. We know better than that. There's no way that that could have actually happened. Completely forgetting the fact that God is an all-powerful being. I mean, if you believe that we were created and that God created the earth, why is it so hard for us to believe that God has the power to manipulate or control our natural surroundings? Do you really think the flood was that difficult of a thing for him to produce? And second, we fail to see the truth behind the story. So in the case of the flood, there is this amazing truth behind the story. It's epic and it's eternal, right? The flood is a dress rehearsal for the end of time. Not that there will be another flood, 
per se. The Bible makes that pretty clear. But it was an illustration for us, right? It was a um, a type of what's going to happen at the end of time, a physical, tangible event that should have woken them up, right? It should wake us up to the fact that we aren't at the top of the food chain. God is in control and God has the power to end things on this planet when the time is right. The story of the flood directly correlates with what will happen at the end of time. History will repeat itself. Matthew 24, 7, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? That's like directly stating it in the Bible that you look at that story and that's how it's going to be at the end of time. So what was it like in the days of Noah, right? How were they acting? What was their culture like? What was the popular beliefs of the day? Uh, And what was up with the small little group of people that were carrying the absolute truth about the flood and that it was coming? And what was up with that choice that people had to make, right? Get on the boat or choose not to get on the boat. Listen to your conscience or go against it. According to the Bible, history will repeat itself. Things in our culture will mimic the life during the time of the flood, the life of Noah. And at some point, there will be a small group of people carrying this concept, this absolute truth to the rest of the world. And everyone on earth will be given a choice at that time, an eternal choice, a life or death choice. Not if they should get on a boat or not. Like it might be something completely different, but just as important. For example, like when the Israelites fled Egypt, right? They came to the Red Sea, God parted the water, and they had a choice, a life or death kind of choice. They could trust God, walk through the sea, and live. Or they could trust in science and their own understanding, this isn't real, this isn't right, this can't possibly happen, and stay on the shore and then eventually die when the Egyptians arrived. So throughout time, people have lived through events like this where they had a decision to make, life or death decisions. And so it'll be at the end of time, right? As it was in the days of Noah. Last but not least, uh, let's talk about the uh, the literal creation week, right? So this idea that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days, and then rested for one literal 24-hour day. Put those together and you have one literal seven-day week. Sound familiar? It's the same week we have today. The seven-day block of time that's on everyone's calendar, right? And the only block of time that does not have a celestial support for it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, each of the other elements of time, the day, the month, and the year, all have a celestial reason. So what makes up a day? Well, it's the earth making one full revolution. The month is the moon making one full revolution around the earth. And the year, the year is the earth making one full revolution revolution around the sun. But what celestial support is there for the week? None. Right? The only reason we have the week is because God gave it to us and he told us it was good, that it was a rhythm that our bodies needed. Work for six days, rest for one, a cycle that keeps us healthy, keeps us from getting burned out. And he called this cycle, or at least the one day rest in that cycle, the Sabbath, right? It's the, it's the only reason 
that the week exists the way it does because God knew that it was important to our health and well-being. So what happens when we deconstruct things like the seven literal day creation story? First, we're telling God to take a hike as if his word in the Bible wasn't clear enough somehow, right? That we know better when the Bible literally says, and there was evening and there was morning the third day, right? Uh, It has to be talking about a year, right? Or maybe a decade or possibly a thousand years, right? It couldn't possibly be a literal day, right? And the fact that God's chosen people, the Israelites, were on a schedule of six work days and one rest day, that couldn't possibly mean that that's related to the week of creation, right? They must have been confused in some way. You know, they couldn't possibly have gotten it right. Even though the Israelite leaders like Moses had actual conversations with God, right? There must be some miscommunication. God probably wasn't being clear enough with them, right? Now, sorry for the sarcasm, but you see how this works, right? You see how choosing to deconstruct that one little piece, whether or not God created the earth in seven literal days, has a ripple effect that immediately calls into question other things, right? Like the weekly cycle, like resting on one day of the week is important. This whole concept of resting on a day called the Sabbath in the Bible is important. It's all based on a seven-day cycle, right? And that cycle is based on the week of creation when God set it up. Now, this isn't the episode where we discuss end-time events and things like that, so we're just going to stop over ahead. But spoiler alert, what if the Sabbath was the choice we had to make at the end of time, right? The life or death choice we talked about, the eternal decision, the get on the boat moment for the final generation. I know it sounds pretty far-fetched, right? Too simple, too picky. Uh, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound a whole lot different than somebody asking you to get on a boat or not, or um, cross a dried up seabed, right? And if it is true, Can you see how important it would be not to deconstruct the belief in the seven literal days of creation? This is a puzzle piece that has eternal ramifications, right? It has to remain intact. It's part of absolute truth. It's part of the truth path that's been passed down since the dawn of time. So there you have just a few threads that I believe are hanging out there that people tug on, pull on, try to rip out, try to change so that they can believe something different than what's true, than the absolute truth that exists. But these aren't the only ones, right? There are so many more. These are just a few of them, ones that I thought might help illustrate the danger of deconstructionism and the fact that deconstructing small pieces of your faith can have massive ripple effects, right? Effects that can unravel even the most expensive sweaters. So let's land the plane. This week, ask yourself the following questions. So do you believe in absolute truth, right? Do you believe in this idea that there is a set of truth that exists and it's been on a truth path that stretches from the beginning of time to the end of time? If so, how does this impact your decision-making? Number two, look back on your life. Can you see places where you tried to deconstruct your faith? If so, can you point out the reasons, the ultimate intentions behind why you made the changes? And what were the beliefs that you changed? Do you think that you might need to dust some of them off and rethink them again? 
And finally, what does it look like for you to preserve absolute truth for yourself personally, for your family, for those you come in contact with, people you work with, people you go to school with? What does it look like for you to preserve absolute truth? Well, that's it. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. This was a long one. Um, I didn't realize how long this was going, but I mean, this is, it's kind of opening a can of worms. I understand there's so many other conversations that will probably come out of this one episode. Um, but I really thought it was important, right? Many of these conversations don't even happen these days. We're too busy or we feel like we've already answered enough spiritual stuff in our life. Like, just leave me alone. I just want to live my life. So we just ignore things like this, right? We pretend that it isn't there, that it isn't that important until it's too late and we realize how important it really was. So I love that we get to do this together. I love that we get to wrestle with these hard questions. Um, have a amazing week. Uh, hang on to that absolute truth. And as always, keep transcending human. For more information on Transcend Human or the Transcend Human podcast, visit us at transcendhuman.com. There you'll find all of the podcast episodes along with the show notes. You'll find blog posts and other resources that will be helpful to you. You can also find our social media links there, and you can contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. And finally, we would love it if you would share the podcast with friends and family. Uh, if you do have an extra minute, stop by Apple Podcasts and uh, leave us a rating and a review. That always helps to boost us in the rankings and ensure that more people find us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next week.